In 2014, we all heard this. The United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. But Cubans heard something else. A closing door, an end to their special status, and the race was on. How a 90-mile journey by sea became a 3,000-mile trip by land. Find Radio Ambulante on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be advised that during this program, there may be some words that are profane and not suitable for children. Yo, 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 what's everybody? This is Stretch Armstrong. Peace, my name is Bobby DeGossier, a.k.a. Cool Bob Love. Ooh, ooh! You're now listening to What's Good with Stretch and Bobbito, your source for untold stories and uncovered truths from movers and shakers around the world. Oh, you did it without the script? <laughs> Tonight we're coming to you live from the Player Studios in Los Angeles. I think it's Playa. It's, it's uh, Playa, which is a, a Spanish word for beach. Tonight, we're coming to you live from the Playa Studios in Los Angeles, <laughs> California. Joining us in a moment is an artist who is revered equally on the street, amongst A-list celebrities, and in the corporate world. Please give it up for the one and only Mr. Cartoon. All right, so the former graffiti writer turned multifaceted artist, designer, film producer, entrepreneur has done design collabs with companies like Nike, Toyota, and the LA Rams. He founded the Joker clothing line, opened a famous tattoo shop, and has taught art to the youth. Cartoon, B.B. Kirkland might be a legend in two games. Mr. Cartoon is a legend in like 55 games. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to jump right in. Now, here in Los Angeles, there's the lowrider culture, which mm. has its art scene. For sure. There's gang culture, yep. which has its art scene. Let's travel back to your little dude. Right. You know, even before you even realizing you're an artist. Sure. What are you seeing? What's, what's inspiring you? What's capturing your eye? Like, I know for myself, when I was young, I could tell you the floor in my building the first sure. time I saw a tag. I was yeah. four years old. So what sparks in your memory in terms of the striking moment of like, ah! Wow, yeah, I mean, I remember reading the walls. You know, my mom going to the grocery store and you're just driving, you start to read the walls and trip on the hand styles, you know? And uh, I remember it was uh, the early 80s probably and MTV was new, you know? There was only about six videos on rotation. And I seen this Blondie video and it had Fab Five Freddy, it had a Lee piece in it, and it had real New York graffiti in it. And we were like, damn, because we had no reference of what was going on in New York. In LA, it was more gang culture, right? So there was a couple guys that moved from New York to LA that were like soon, and um, other characters that were doing real New York bombing in LA. So I wouldn't meet them till later on, but first we would emulate, like I would emulate Futura. I got a hold of a, 
street art book. You know, we memorized that shit because that was like our only reference to to graffiti. So the street art book you're referring to is by Martha Cooper and Henry Shaw. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's like a Bible for the entire world, basically. For sure. It let the whole world know what was going on in, in the train graph. And in the West Coast, we didn't have a subway system. You know, fools were right on the bus, fools were right on, on like freight cars, but it was nothing like that. So we would look to that, and hip hop was a big thing. So either you were a breaker, you were a DJ, you were a rapper, or you were a graffiti writer. I tried breaking, <laughs> and it, it, it didn't work, man, you know? But I gave it a shot, you know? And, and, but I could draw, you know? But I was just drawing like regular shit. I, I, my mom told me I was great, so I believed it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even know if she knew what she was doing, but she was instilling this confidence. And when I look back at those pictures now, they were all stick people and shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so my parents encouraged me. They're both artists too, but not by career. You grew up in East LA where you had lowrider car culture and gang culture, each of which had its own expression of art that branched out of it. How were you taking in these two cultures as a kid? Yeah, that, that's a good question because even Thank though you, we, we try. were, <laughs> we were infatuated with New York rap and hip hop, we had to cling on to what was ours. So what we invented was low riding. We would look through Lowrider magazine, and you would see these candy paint jobs, man. That were that were art rolling down the street, candy brandy wine, candy tangerine, candy cobalt blue, all these different colors, and fools would compete against each other on who can come up with the freshest color for your car and you will be judged by your car in LA because it, you have to drive everywhere so my old man used to take me to car shows and I would walk around and I would look at the paint jobs and there was freehand pinstriping and murals and gold leaf and all the shit put together and the cars laying on, on the grass and there's girls around it and people are having fun and I said man I want to be a part of that and my old man goes hey look at that man right there and it was some old dinosaur airbrush in a t-shirt, you know? And I was like, man, if he could do it, I could do it. And I picked up that airbrush and that shit was hard as fuck to do. He made it look real easy, you know? But I found my purpose. So my old man goes, hey, it's easy. You can barter everything. You just have to be needed. You want it to be wanted. So learn how to do those murals on the car. You can do it. My old man had a small mom and pop print shop in, in Torrance in the Harbor area. And he would print business cards for all the car painters. So he hooked me up with these painters and he would let me look over their shoulders. So I learned a lot by watching and submersing myself in the culture. Not really even knowing I was doing that shit. Now, for our vast audience of sure. hundreds of millions of, of listeners around the world, yeah. how would you self-describe Mr. Cartoon in terms of your artistic expression? You know what? My style was around way before I was. So the Chicano art style started in the Pachuco days in the 1940s, right? After World War II, there was uh, rations on clothing, and the, and the zoot suiters would come out, and they'd have baggy clothes, and, you know, they were proud of their heritage, and it was Mexicans, Filipinos, blacks, everyone kind of together in and, and rebellion. And this style of art developed that was romantic. It went along with all the classic soul oldies. So if you looked at uh, Smokey Robinson, he had tears of a clown on the radio. It was your birthday, you'd have a clown come to your party. So it wasn't that uncommon to see, look at a homeboy's arm and you see a clown, but he's got a brim and a double barrel shotgun all shermed out on the side of someone's arm, you know? And we'd look at that and we'd be like, damn, this fool just got out of jail and he's got these clowns tattooed. But 
but they're not these goofball clowns at my party. These fools got, you know, brims and, and trench coats on and, and gangsters, you know. And they would drive only 1930s Chevy cars. And so I kind of seen that. But all that art was coming out of the jail system. So I was like, damn, I want to go to that art school. You know, that's a <laughs> motherfucker right there. <laughs> you know, I eventually went, but the food's not that great, you know. So I took that look. You know, I like that, that glamorous. They were kind of glorifying um, our culture in, in the street and, and old English lettering. You know, there was this old English lettering. And back in the day, you know, I heard this from Chaz, that everything that was important was written in old English. If you got a death certificate, a wedding certificate, you know, your graduation certificate, it was had to, you know. I never thought about that. So the homeboys would emulate that and write San Pedro or Compton in, in, in the 60s you started to see this block writing going on the wall and it was like a, a fast way of doing old English so the cops wouldn't get you, you know, and they, they would block this out and, and uh, we seen that shit and we would try to copy it. Like everybody could do that shit. So everyone was trying to do it. But for my love of hip hop and it being the 80s, I, I mixed the both. I took the old school Cholo, Pachuco, uh, Mexican American version of LA culture and I mixed it a little bit with hip hop and kind of blew everything up and started doing these big walls in the neighborhood. and That's how I learned. I would just knock on the liquor store and say, hey, you know, everyone's writing on your wall, I'll do a free mural. And they heard the word free, you know, and, and they jumped on it, you know. <laughs> and built up my little portfolio, you know. Yeah. You mentioned Chaz, right? Yeah, Chaz is an artist, and he ended up doing like the, the Star Wars logo, uh, the Warriors, Boulevard Nights. We grew up looking at his logos, not even know that a, a Chicano, Mexican brother, a Mexican drew that. Born, born you know in LA. Saying? Yep. Word. Of, of Mexican descent. And he was an inspiration for us. So when I was young, the fact that I could play ball gave me kind of like the hood pass. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I got jumped my freshman year in high school. But then, like, they were like, yo, nah, nah, he plays ball, leave him alone. Like, he's cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, what type of pass did you get because of your artistic hand skills so early on? Yeah, that's, uh, um, so 1990, I, was pre I graduated from San Pedro High, didn't do any work, just drew my way through, and I, I knew, you know, I had to. That just shows, you know, like, back then I was actually doing marketing and, like, business relations in high school, because I wasn't going to do any of that work. They lost me in math a long time ago. I was in basic math but I knew how to draw. You know, I got an A in the newspaper where I would draw for the newspaper. And I learned then that you can manipulate people and get what you want. <laughs> the art of manipulation, you know what I'm saying? And I had to graduate, you know, and I just, I would, the teacher would sit me down and be like, you know what, um, son, you're, you're a good kid, but uh, you're failing, you know? And I'd be like, you know what, the kids never listen to you, you know? You, you should write a sign that says, no food in the class. And if you write it the right way, the kids will notice and pay attention. And he would do it and give me a D minus, and I had a cap and gown, and I graduated just like everybody else, you know? And, you know, when you know how to draw, like a lot of artists get passes to go to any neighborhood in LA. So there's certain fools that you would trip out that they were tattooers, but they can go into their enemy territory and tattoo. They can go into um, any neighborhood. And so I started 
as I got a little bit older, I had to get some kind of a job. You know what I mean? The old man was like, come on, man, you got to come work with me or go, you know. So I was like, man, I could, uh, I got arrested when I was 17 for graffiti in, in, in my neighborhood for, for vandalism. And I did graffiti to pay off the debt I owed for the city. I just walked into like a gym and convinced them that they needed some lettering on the inside of the boxing gym, you know. And uh, my sister got me a job right after that of doing gangster writing for the movie studios, doing the, the, the writing, like graffiti on the set. So my mom would type me up an invoice on the typewriter, and I took my old man's old briefcase, and I put spray paint cans, and I showed up on the set, man, you know? And I just played it off like I knew what I was doing, and I'd steal food off the craft service table and take that shit back home. And I don't know, I fell in love with that shit, you know? I was like, they called me Mr., and that's when we started putting, like, I was just cartoon back then, you know? So then we were like, oh, Mr. Cartoon, like, yeah. And then I, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. And I, I was only 16, and I told my homeboy, I go, what do you think, Holmes? I'm Mr. Cartoon. He goes, you grow into it. <laughs> I grew into it, you know. And we used to put doctor in front of our name, sir. Like, we had all kinds of titles, but the, the cartoon clicked. But right then, I mean, by accident, I was on a Hollywood set. I would just get jobs, and I was persistent, and I was... Happen to be at the right places at the right time, and sometimes the wrong place at the wrong time, you know? It's interesting, because you, you had an awareness of what was going on in New York, what, even though you came up in L.A. And if you look at New York graph writers, they were influenced by pop art, often cartoons, and movie poster signage. Sure. Here in L.A., you have, you have Hollywood, you have world-famous museums. Outside of your local influences, and hip hop, what were some of the some of the external influences that wow. that uh, you know turned you into the artist that you eventually became? Uh, my parents were a trip, man. I was a real quiet kid, and I would carry a pad of paper under my arm and a pencil in my ear. And my parents could take me anywhere. They would take me to parties. They would they just put me in a room, and they'd come in kind of faded and show their son off to their drunk friend and <laughs> those type of things. And a lot of the music my parents were listening to, you know, listening to Cameo. Earth, Wind, and Fire. My first little album cover I drew was a Saturday Night Fever, you know, and, and I would draw the Queen album covers and shit. And I remember there was a song, White Lines, that came out. And it was all, damn, you're talking about cocaine. And, I mean, I had never done coke yet, but I was a little kid and I would draw these pictures of cocaine, you know, and my, my mother was like, you can't draw this, you know? And it was graffiti and like cocaine mixed together. And it was, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew it was like forbidden and it was dangerous and it was cool, you know? So I, I, um, I started drawing anything I kind of wanted to be down with. Like if karate was happening, like Kung Fu theater, I would draw like Shaolin warriors, you know? And BMX was hot in the, in the late 70s here. I would draw that, you know? And when you got a teenager, you start drawing girls, you know? And you draw all these things. I would just submerge myself into whatever I was in blindly and just draw about it. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Red Bull Radio. Whether it's the latest dance hall out of Kingston, techno from Berlin, underground hip-hop, or old soul gems, Red Bull Radio is the place to tune in and discover great music that's new to you. With in-depth interviews and live performances from festivals around the globe, plus music handpicked by influential artists, 
journalists, and DJs, you'll know what you were looking for when you hear it. Listen at RedBullRadio.com. So you mentioned that, that your mother was a big encourager of you as an artist. Yes. Other than your mom, who's oh. always going to love you no matter right, what. Right, right. Can you tell us a person that in your formative days made you believe that you can actually have a career as an artist? Yeah, I think um, my old man was waiting in line at the bank one time. And he comes home and he goes, good news, son. I go, what's that? He goes, I signed you up for karate. And I go, oh, pop. No, man, I don't want to do that, man. He goes, oh, you're doing it. I already paid for it. You got to go. So he takes me to by Inglewood and drops me off at some karate school, you know. But the good thing is I walked in there and all the walls were muraled inside of the karate school. And I was like, these dragons. And inside the dragons were like faces of women and their hair would go down and would go into a clock. And that clock numbers were crooked and that would go into something else. And I was like obsessed with these murals inside the, and the, the gym um, black belt certificates were all hand stippled and drawn and my old man would print them and he goes, hey, you're going to trip out on the master. He, he paints cars. So my karate master was the candy man of Hawthorne and he would candy paint the lowriders and black out into some karate shit and start painting <laughs> the lowriders and like doing kung fu at the same time and shit. <laughs> and my... Karate teacher was my. Wait, what, what was his name? His name was Vic, Big Vic Larue. So Big Vic had handlebar mustache, and he would, he was an animal, you know, he was a beast. So he took me over to Ron's house, and now Ron was an Indonesian Dutch guy. So he had Asian eyes, but they were green, and he had Popeye forearms, and you could see every vein in this man's arm. And he was a tunnel rat in Vietnam. And he had a big hole in his ear because he had stepped by a mine and it blew his ear out. But he was so short that he would go in the tunnels in Vietnam and kill the sergeants or, you know, higher ups in the Vietnamese army. So he was, he was gone, right? But he was a master artist, pinstriper, and laid gold leaf on cars. And the first time I'd have seen a mural on a car was him showing up at my old man's shop to pick up his business cards. And he had a mural of him on the hood of his car with the tiger with the topless girl with waterfalls in the back. And I was like, damn. You know? And I was like, I want a mural like that, you know? Like, of my shit. I, could, I seen that it could be done, you know? So this man let me look over his shoulder. He had no patience for kids. And he would beat me up half the time, you know? It was like half kung fu training, and then the other half was art. And uh, he liked my old man, so he put up with me. But he was kind of like, why am I teaching this kid? He's going to steal my, my job. Like, get the fuck out of here, man. And he would throw me out all the time. But I learned enough. I seen it done. So I was like, man, if he did it, it's, it's humanly possible. I could do this. Like, that mural was done by hand in his imagination. So I think that, and it was on his car hood. So that was the closest thing for us to have our name on the side of a subway car is that we would mural these cars and we'd have them drive through the city and we would get fame that way. So, this is incredible. Yes, give it up. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Big Ron. Incredible. I, I mean, you've often really given a lot of love to your mentors 
right? Now, clearly, some of the people you just mentioned <laughs> sure. may not have... They missed the internet, that's for sure. <laughs> they missed but I'm saying, but they, they, uh, they, they mentored you in a, in not in a direct way. Yeah. But in the, in, the, in the ones who did directly mentor you, what are the kind of like lifelong jewels that you sort of grab from them that are still relevant that you hold dear today? My old man, you know, is a rare situation where um, he's 75 right now. He would listen to uh, motivation tapes that had the concept of if you think it, it can manifest in your life. If you can't see it, I can't help you get there, right? So he would put these little jewels in my head and um, it just kind of gave me a skeleton in my head of how to approach invisible things. So when you're an artist, right, you don't know if you have a job tomorrow or next week. It's kind of you have to create your next job or your destiny, right? Even though I was making it up as I was going along, I didn't know that I was kind of preparing myself for bigger things. All the little things that you're doing that you're maybe not getting applause for or no one's giving you credit or saying, hey, Holmes, you know, good job or whatever. All that are building blocks that I was doing that will one day put me up to another level. So... It's all about those times where no one's paying attention and no one cares that you build yourself and, and start to carve yourself as an artist, you know? Yes, sir. So whether you were being mentored um, intentionally or just being influenced by, by OGs, by your dad or whatever, uh, you went from being a, a mentoree to eventually right. being a mentor and you've invested a lot, a lot of time sure. with younger people. Can you share a moment where you feel you had a profound influence on the life of a young person in a, in a really concrete way? Yeah, I think back and um, I remember my friends that were my age becoming art teachers. My friend goes, hey, can you come down and talk to these knuckleheads at my school, man? They won't listen to nothing we're saying. and They'll listen to you. They'll trip out on you, you know? And I go, yeah, I'll go down there. And I took my little airbrush compressor and I took my airbrush and I, I put a T-shirt on a piece of uh, wood, I stretched it, and I showed them how to airbrush T-shirts. It felt pretty good because teaching people kind of gave me this a little bit of a rush. That's one thing I could talk about is art. So I was like, I'm gonna show these fools how to hands-on trade with your hands. Because in my head, I was like, you know what? If I learn nothing else but sign painting, I'll always have a job. Give me a brush, a candle, and a can of paint, and I'll, I can letter. And I'll, I'll, zombie apocalypse happens, they're going to need toilet this way, you know, and I got a job, you know what I mean? If I got drafted in the military, I'd paint the teeth on the plane. I, when I tried to be in a gang when I was a kid, I would just do the block gang letters, you know, in the neighborhood. Like, art got me out of everything, you know? So now with every collaboration I would do with, say, a corporate company, I would bring in a couple busloads of kids and tell them how to do it. Mm. So you can't be mad at me saying I sold out on some bullshit. You can, but my comeback is I helped these knuckleheads right here. So, you know, it, it balances it out. One of the things that you're most well known for is your tattoo business. You're infamous for having a serious waiting list of folks waiting to be inked up by you, and your client list includes celebrities like Eminem, David Banner, Justin Timberlake, 50 Cent, Dr. Dre, and even Beyonce. 
of all the famous people you've tattooed, who took the pain the least? Probably the hardest one I probably had to tattoo was Kanye. Dealing with Kanye. <laughs> Imagine what it would be like, you know what I'm saying? He's art directing the art director. He's giving me a hard time. And, uh, man, you know. He, he tried to take the needle out of your hand and, and show you I, how it's At done. one point, I was like, you do it, Holmes. You do it. You know, but you deal with creative types, man, and they're the hardest to deal with. And a lot of people, the guys that pass out the most are the biggest, toughest, strongest guys. You know, they'll, I thought it was the needles, you know, but people started to black out when I was just drawn with the Sharpie on them. You know what I'm saying? Like, having people pass out on you is a p part they don't train you for. You can't get training on, on people psyching themselves out and blacking out in the chair. And it's, it's a whole mission, man. So you got on my radar in the mid-2000s, probably 2005 or 2006. I was doing a show for ESPN called It's the Shoes. And they hit me mm. up. They were like, yo, we got to interview this cat. He just did a collaboration with Nike for the Air Force One shoe. For sure. Now, I found that interesting because to get an L.A.-based artist mm -hmm. to collaborate with the quintessential New York shoe, for me, was like brilliant. How did that collaboration happen with Nike? Well, prior to me getting the collaboration, I would go with Cypress Hill to New York. And I picked up on that the East Coast was all about fashion. They were all about your getup. They didn't have car culture the way we had. Their car culture was the shoes that they were wearing. That was their car, you know? And they knew a lot about it, and we didn't. We, I was learning like, about Jays, and I was learning about Air Force Ones, and I would go to Tokyo a lot. I was spending a lot of time in Tokyo and I would see babes and all this shit way before a lot of people had seen it, you know? So I started to see the shape of the shoe and what it meant to hip hop and that true hip hop heads were wearing that shoe. So I was like, man, I, when I seen that Futura did a shoe and Stash, I was like, man, it's possible, you know? These, these are other graffiti heads, but I'm from LA, so that's, like when they thought about fashion, it was New York immediately and like, Subway graph riders from the 80s, you know what I'm saying? And I had this idea, I was like, man, I'm gonna make me a West Coast one. I know this one kid named B. Wynn. B. Wynn that works at Nike, that's my end. I'm gonna hit him up, it's gonna be the shit. I gotta figure it out in my head. And I showed up at the Nike headquarters and let me in, gave me a Red Bull, and I go, B, I got this idea, Holmes, are you ready? Air Force One, Mr. Cartoon, West Coast, black and gray, Holmes. What you think? He goes, let me see what I can do. He called me back like a week later and he goes, you're not going to believe this shit. I got you a trip to New York, first class, and you're going to tattoo at the Air Force One event. Mark Parker's going to be there. Everyone's going to be there. Future, all these, all yeah, your Mark, heroes. Just for those who don't know, Mark Parker's like top of the food chain at Nike under, under, under uh, Phil Knight. The yeah, founder. And I was all happy. I called my manager. I go, what you think, man? I hit up Esteban. I go, what do you think, bro? And he goes, he goes, that's the shit. It's a lot of money and it's a good opportunity. But if you take that money, they'll never do a collab with you. And I was like, damn. So I called back B and I was like, I can't do it, man. But I'll go if they want to fly me out as a tastemaker. Some new word I had learned at that time and shit. <laughs> I didn't know what that shit was, you know? 
I had been called a lot of things, but never a tastemaker, you know? So, but they had, you know, the cool, I'll, I'll slide in under that title, you know? And they did it. And I got to meet Mark Parker. And uh, I rapped to him for, you know, 30 seconds. I got the collab after that. So, it, um, thank you. But even though the Air Force One was the hottest shoe on the planet, I mean, it was like crack cocaine, man. And it was like the shit. It was very important to me that I did a Cortez because I couldn't forget where I come from. You know what I'm saying? Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Red Bull Radio. Whether it's the latest dancehall out of Kingston, techno from Berlin, underground hip-hop, or old soul gems, Red Bull Radio is the place to tune in and discover great music that's new to you. With in-depth interviews and live performances from festivals around the globe, plus music handpicked by influential artists, journalists, and DJs, you'll know what you were looking for when you hear it. Listen at RedBullRadio.com. Cartoon, you got stories for days. Right now we gotta, gotta get to some people's favorite part of our show. Y'all know. Favorite part of What's Good with Stretch and Bobbito, and it's called The Impression Session. Session. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> you know about The Impression Session? No, you gotta tell me about it. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you about it. We each play you a song, yeah. and you react to it any way you want. Okay. This is Art LeBeau, and you're listening to The Oldie Show. Up next, we got a call from Flaco, calling from the penitentiary up north. And he shout outs Shy Girl, and saying, baby, I miss you. That is uh, Suavecito by Malo, right? Um, the San Francisco-based band, that song is known as the Chicano National Anthem. Um, so I thought it was apropos. And, and I'm just, I've always been intrigued by the, the musical component of, of Chicano and lowrider culture. And I, I think about how it parallels the way uh, skinheads and punks in England in the 70s were obsessed with roots reggae. Yeah. And you have, uh, you know, a Mexican-American Chicano lowrider culture right. that was even though that's not an, uh, an R&B song, but there was this... Uh, this soul. This, sure, and, uh, and, you know, they were into bands like Blood, Sweat, and Tears and, and War, and, yep. and I think if you look at Chicano gang aesthetics and you're an outsider, just with a superficial reading, you probably wouldn't expect that the musical component of that culture is what it is. That's right. Yeah, that, that was uh, Art LeBeau was a famous DJ. He's still alive. Uh, and you would hear a lot of Suavecito. You would hear War and Tierra and, and those type of groups playing. And his voiceover, 
he was out of our culture, but in our culture. He was like a... He got a pass, you know what I mean? He would, he would pronounce like, the Spanish shit wrong sometimes. And, like, uh, I'm familiar like, with this dynamic. Older. <laughs> he was like an older Armenian man, but he was always there, you know what I'm saying? And he bought all this music, and he had a radio show, and he would do shout-outs for people that were in prison. So you could tell, oh, he's from, calling from Soledad, you know, somewhere up north, you know, in a, in a Chino prison or, or somewhere. Um, and he would do dedications, you know, and uh, it's, it's, he's like the, the voice of L.A. as far as an old, old DJ, like coming out of like Huggy Bear and those type of uh, old school DJs where they actually played oldies. And it was for the specific crowd. So these groups would tour, you know, the dramatics, the temperies, the whatnots dynamic superiors, and they, these were all black groups from the East Coast, from Philly, New York, New Jersey, and they would come to the West Coast and play for purely Chicano, Mexican crowds. So they must have been tripping looking in the audience. There'd be a few Crips in there and shit, you know? But overall, it would basically all be Mexicans in there, you know? Mr. Cartoon, I have a song for you. Okay. Hit it! It's time to go to bed. Put those pens away. Did you just draw on the wall right now? Go to bed. Can't watch Wonder Woman tonight. That's my mom scolding me. <laughs> you can bring it down. You can bring it down. <laughs> so for those who don't know, that's uh, the theme song to the TV show Wonder Woman from the 1970s. For anyone who lived in the 70s, we all had a crush on Linda Carter. Years later, I find out that her mom's was Mexican. I was like, oh, word, that's dope. And I'm finding out about all these other, like Charlie Sheen was Mexican yep. and Martin Sheen was Mexican. I'm like, yo, that's crazy. So I just wanted to get your feedback about your memories about the TV show. Just wanted to get, get your thoughts on that song. Yeah, I brought back a mean flashback right there. Um, Did you have yeah. her poster on your wall? Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a real big deal, man. You know, like all, all bullshit aside, like an invisible plane, you know, and, and an island full of women, you know, it's like... <laughs> That shit's, and she, oh. she looked, man, she had, she had feathers in her hair, and her hair went back, and it was like dark brunette hair, you know, and, and uh, yeah, man, that, that was like the shit, you know, and back at that time when that show, I used to ride all over my mom's walls, you know, and she, she hated it, and um, my kids ended up drawing on my wall, too, you know, and, but all these shows, man, carved us out, I think, is, is our characters. Let's give it up for Mr. Yeah. Cartoon, yo. Thank you. Stretch. Love you, my brother. Hey, I'm just really grateful, too, that all you guys showed up tonight, man. It, re it really means a lot, man, you know? Thank you. That's our show. This podcast was produced by Maria Paz Gutierrez, Franny Mohanan, and Sammy Yenigan. Our editors are Nigeri Eaton and Steve Nelson. Special thanks to our engineers, Patrick Murray and Marcia Caldwell. Our executive producer is Abby O'Neill. If you like the show, you can hear more on NPR One. Check out our interviews with Rosie Perez and Eric Hayes, as well as Hill Harper. See ya!